And Jesus, we're so grateful to be invited to follow you, to be accepted as we follow you, to be totally loved and embraced when we do follow you in spite of our weakness, our fears, our struggles. Man, you just love us so much. Thank you. And uh, you have a message of love for us every time we turn to your word. And and I just pray that we uh, receive that and respond to it faithfully today. In your name, amen. How's everybody doing? So I'm Jim. I'm the executive pastor here. I'm the pinch hitter. Uh, Pastor Bruce was invited by his son, who's in the ROTC at Grand Canyon University, to attend a pretty cool ceremony today, actually in the evening. So he's out in Arizona uh, attending that with his son, Ryan. So he asked me to step in on short notice, which I'm happy to do, and uh, continue our series uh, through the book of Luke together with you. So we're going to be in Luke 3 in just a second. I did want to say something about the building program. Bruce mentioned last week that we had a a meeting to go to to get some uh, approval. It was actually a pretty easy and standard meeting. We're not in a public process unless somebody appeals our building uh, pre-approval, which they've yet to. So uh, we're moving along. We did get approved with the idea of being able to build a building out here. And the next step in the process is going to be to draw plans, uh, get those approved, and that's going to be, let's say, six to six to eight weeks probably. And then uh, once that all gets done, uh, we're hoping, we're praying that we can break ground in January. That's kind of the ambitious goal right now, and we're really looking forward to that. And I've had a few people ask, and and, and just around here, we get asked, so why would you want to do something like that? You know, it's a lot of money. Wouldn't that be better served X, Y, Z number of different places? And maybe it would be. But we have this building. We have lights. We have air conditioning. We have seats. We have carpet. And we want adequate bathrooms and offices because we host the gospel here. We host the opportunity to not only share God's love, truth, grace, and an eternity in heaven with people. We share the empowerment of putting into your lives the ability to go out there and share that with your friends and family. It's vitally important what we do here on this campus, and so we know that, and we have a commitment to that, Uh, and together with you, we will partner to make this facility as good as it can be and on a value-based approach, and then also send people out. And we do plenty of both, so uh, thanks for partnering with us. We love it. We love what's gonna happen out there. Um, I think Pastor Gregory, whose office currently is in the back, uh, second floor of the gym. Uh, he probably walks about two or three miles back and forth across this campus just to, just to have meetings with uh, anybody else in the office up here. So we're gonna have nice offices over here. We're gonna have a, a better place to host the newcomer's coffee, which is currently upstairs, um, which can be a trial for some people. It's gonna be right outside the door and really accessible, nice little room. So there's some great advantages to what we're doing there. And we covet your prayers and your effort with that. Um, We're in Luke 3. And I wanted to uh, start out by getting you to think about something I believe we all do. And we wonder if we were in charge, how much better things would be, right? And if you've ever yelled at the TV, you just failed the test. You believe that you know better. So you're watching The Voice, and Blake chooses uh, the weaker singer, and what are you doing? 
You do it. I know you do it. Politics, the debate was on Wednesday, you know? You saw that? Well, you yell at the TV. Yeah. In sports, Thursday night, so in my family, this year we thought we'd do something kind of fun. Uh, we've never done this. This was kids and adults between my family and my in-laws. There's uh, eight of us participating. No, wait, seven. Ten of us participating. And we're, we're doing a football fantasy league. In a fantasy league, if you don't know, you choose players and stuff, and when they perform on the field, they earn points. If they don't perform well, they lose points. And you're just points against points against the people in your league. And on Thursday night, Green Bay was playing, and my sister-in-law, Denise, had... Uh, Aaron Rodgers and Chicago's defense, and I had Jordy Nelson. I had one person. Jordy Nelson's supposed to be the number one receiver on Green Bay. Um, he was projected to get somewhere around 14 points, and all game long, uh, at the end of the first half, he had one catch for nine yards, which is zero points. You need 10 yards for a point, zero points. Chicago's defense had like 11 points, and Aaron Rodgers was on nine. Today, at the start of the day today, after that game was over, I was losing to my sister-in-law 49 to nothing. <laughs> and you know, all game long, I was yelling, throw to Jordy Nelson. Why won't you throw to Jordy Nelson? That's not 87. And I'm yelling at my TV. I know way better than Aaron Rodgers. Maybe not because they ended up winning the game. And then at church, you're not maybe yelling at the TV, but just in the religious world, whether it's church or elsewhere, you think about how you would do things differently. And this isn't much different than how the world was uh, when John the Baptist came on the scene. And that's what we're going to talk about today um, from Luke chapter 3. We look around and we think politically and socially, religiously, financially, mor morally, we want improvement. We want change. We want it to work the way it's supposed to work. We like things when they work right. And the world wasn't working right here. When John came into this world, God had been silent for 400 years. He was not actively communicating through prophets to the nation of Israel. He'd been silent for 400 years, longer than our nation has been a country. There was a corrupt, power-hungry, and oppressive political system in place. There was Rome. There was a Caesar who claimed to be God, and anybody under him had to answer to him as if he were God, including his own leaders. And pressure was great. Oppression was great. Tyranny was great. The Jewish religion, in, in spite of the fact that God was silent, was carrying on and adding organizational complexity and religious practice to the point where Christ would later say to the religious leaders, you pile on burdens too heavy for people to carry. So religion was a little messed up. Socially in the re region of Judea, the majority are poor, overtaxed, uneducated, and restless un under the imperial and tyrannical rule of Rome. And these people want hope, they want peace, they want to be delivered. And I think in a certain sense in America, we feel that. And I don't know how we would respond if the same thing happened in our day because a wild bearded man with camel hair clothes and a creative diet but a clear message shows up on the scene. And that's what we pick up here in Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region and around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who, would, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked, him up, he locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. So John comes into this, John the Baptist comes into this wacky world, right? And he has a message. In the middle of what's going on, again, politically, socially, religiously, he has a message that a king, your true deliverer is coming. Somebody who's going to make all the difference you're looking for. And it's a great message. And he kind of brings out in this message what I see are four essentials that they needed to hear in their time and that we need to hear in ours. And I really hope you can listen to what he has to say. They're super simple essentials. You've heard them before, but I hope the familiarity of them is not lost on you. Because even though these essentials might be familiar, they're essential. They're essential to you understanding and finding and realizing the full life that you can find in God. Whether or not you know him today or have yet to know him, these 
truths are for you. And the first essential John comes and says is we need to listen to God. You know, when God speaks, we should listen. You can think of any number of people that could come in the room, they're experienced, they have authority, they have popularity, and they have integrity. They're great men of God. Maybe they even preach the word, and if they walked in the room today and came to the front and offered to speak, I would probably let them and you would listen with profound interest because of their station, because of what you know about them. And in your head, you might be thinking of somebody, yeah, I'd rather hear John MacArthur than Jim. Uh, And that would be fair. God is speaking. Put yourself in the place of these people. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. And here comes John the Baptist. Look with me at verse, starting in verse 2. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, he's coming on the authority of God's word. And when God speaks, it's not just casually here. It's not like reading a quick tweet. It's not like turning your face at a commercial on TV. It's God's word. That debate was on Wednesday night, and some of you were compelled to listen, and others of us were watching the Dodgers or some other sporting event or repeats of Family Feud on Game Show Network. Some things are life-changing and worth listening to, and others just fill time. John the Baptist, when he is speaking, he's speaking on behalf of God, and when God speaks, we need to listen. We need to listen up. On, on any number of different professional sporting teams, there's a coaching staff, they're large, right? A football coaching staff, you wouldn't even believe how big it is. You see what you think is the coaching staff, and then you show up for a meeting, And instead of there being five or six guys, there's like 19. But when at UCLA, when Jim Mora walks in the room and he speaks, everybody listens. We are daily bombarded with messages from email, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Yahoo, Fox News, ESPN, billboards, bus stops, shopping centers, phone calls, and text messages. I feel like I get more messages put into my brain in one day than I got in a week 20 years ago. There's so many messages out there, but there's only one that really matters. There's only one that will change your life. There's only one that will change your eternity. And when God speaks, we need to listen up. Don't simply hear, actively listen. Listen with the intent to respond. Listen to the intent to respond obediently. Listen to the, with the intent to change your life. And that's how John came into this world. It was a nutty, wacky, crazy world, not much like, unlike ours. And these people had options, and so do we. We can respond, we can resist, some people even rebel. Your creator, 
your God, your Savior is speaking. John says, listen up. And what is his message? He's got a message here. It's from God. It's John the Baptist coming in, breaking the silence. He's coming into a weird world, a wacky world, a crazy world, a world that's confused about their government, and they're looking for solutions from the government. Some people are cooperating with the government, and some people are rebelling, and others are indifferent, but they think that there's a solution there. Others are looking for financial solutions. Some Jews even went to the place of becoming so cooperative with Rome, they were tax collectors. They wanted financial freedom. There's religious solutions. There's more leaders, more rulers, more ceremony than when God was speaking. He hasn't spoken for 400 years, but these guys are figuring out a way to make it bigger, to make it better, quote, unquote. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist calls these religious people vipers. Look what it says there in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance means changing your mind. It means you're not going to go along with how everything else is going. You're not going to go along with how you think. You're going to go along with what God thinks. It's a change. And he calls these people vipers. I looked up. You know, I think we, you know, I looked up what a viper is. I think I assumed I knew, but I forgot something that I thought was really important about the quality of vipers. How do vipers hunt for their prey? As a category, they use camouflage. They pretend. They pretend to be sand. They pretend to be a rock. They pretend to be a tree branch. They pretend to be leaves. They pretend. They mix in. And I think in the religious leader's sense of it, they not only mix in and pretend, they do so for their own advantage. And to call someone a viper is to call them deadly. And I believe that John the Baptist was calling them that because they were not listening to God, nor had they turned to God. And his message is, listen and turn to God. Seek his approval and not the approval of those around you. Seek his approval. Be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. They wanted approval and satisfaction and peace and blessing and wholeness and hope and they were looking in all these other areas and John the Baptist comes on the scene and says it's not there, it's not in the political process. It's not in financial freedom. What you really want is only in God. And you think of the places that you find validation and satisfaction in the world. I thought about some that I've experienced and that I think are common to us all. Pleasure and fun. We think that happiness is the end goal. Achievement or success, power and influence. And at the base of those things and others that we might try to find satisfaction is most often the desire to please ourselves or to please other people. People live for things like likes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Like they live for it. And you might be shaking your head in here, not me. You ever post something to Facebook, not get a like from a family member and be disappointed? 
It's the people who feel that way about it, or you post something at 9.45 and at 10, you only have 11 likes instead of 50, and you're disappointed. And we're desperate for the approval of people around us. John is telling us, be desperate for the approval of God. Turn to God. And I admit, I think it's a common struggle. I know I struggle routinely with wanting to impress others. I thought about what I put on today. I participate in certain sports, and I realized something not long ago. They're all expensive. <laughs> They're all expensive. Hockey, surfing, and cycling. Oh, yeah. People will ask me what your bike costs. I don't tell people what my bike costs very often. And really, I'll, I, I'll admit it. I like showing up with new stuff so people go, dude. I enjoy, and you might enjoy too, the validation of being noticed by others. And what God's really working into me and really out of me is that I need to live for the approval of God first, foremost, and really only. And John the Baptist is coming in. It's a religious culture. He's calling them vipers. They're pretending they're doing a lot of stuff. They're super busy for the Lord. He's been silent. They're more busy now than they were prior to his silence. And he's saying, hey, turn from your things. Turn from your activity. Turn from your pleasure. Turn from your gear. Turn from what you think the solution is and turn to God. People all over the place are turning to everything but God, and he silently comes in and says, turn to me. And John the Baptist shows up looking super odd with a message from God that we need to listen to, and the first thing he tells us is, listen up. Turn to God. Turn to God. He's your solution. Don't mix in other stuff. Turn to God. And then he goes on, he tells us, the third thing he tells us is live life God's way. They start asking him these questions. He says, you know, what do we do? The crowds ask him in verse 10. And in verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. He says, love and care for others like God does. Mirror God. Do what God would do if he were here. Live the way he directs. There's a culture. There's a system. There's things going on that are counter God. You can go along with that or you can go along with God. If you've turned to God, go with God. The word calls us to be transformed. He says that when we become a Christian, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know that verse is about lifestyle? 
Your lifestyle and your habits are the fruit of who you really are, and that's what John the Baptist is saying here. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you have been authorized to. In other words, have integrity. Deal truthfully with others because you serve a God of truth. Deal truthfully in this world. Have integrity. Have a private life and have a public life that lines up with God's word, with God's truth, with God's will. The soldiers also asked him, verse 14, And what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He's saying, don't use others to your own advantage. These guys had families. They wanted to take care of their families. They had needs. They wanted to take care of their needs. And the temptation was to take more than you wanted to be able to get advantage for you and your family. And John the Baptist is saying, no, Don't use others to your advantage. And all of these instructions come down to lifestyle. Why? Because we know actions speak louder than words. And the value of you living out a lifestyle that measures up to what God says is two things at least, maybe three. One is when you live counter to how God instructs, how do you feel inside? Does willfully participating in sin confirm to you that you are God's child? What about when you do live a lifestyle lined up as one who is part of God's family? Doesn't that confirm in your soul, in the part of you that's really you, that you belong to God? Do you see the value of what is being instructed here? There's such a personal import about living right. And it's for your good. And the world and Satan want to tell you that going against God is for your good. And every time we do it, we feel awful, we're guilty, we're ashamed. And our soul is disturbed on a level that we would never invite, but we do it. And by the same token, when we live right, It confirms whose we are. Your lifestyle also confirms to those around you, you belong to God. It confirms when you live right, when you live the lifestyle as a child of God, it confirms to the people you live with that you really love God. Your testimony is real in front of them. You're not hiding, you're not pretending it's real. And that comes down to your lifestyle. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Hey, you guys have been playing games. You've been playing around. You've been messing around for however many years. You're in league with Rome. You're playing religious games. You want your own advantage. Live like God would have you live. But here's another, I think, very, very, very important and often missed benefit of living this lifestyle. It's the value to the community. It's the value to the world. Think of the most Wicked person you know, that you personally know they're wicked. What if the world was like them? Now think of the most wise, the most humble, the most righteous person you know. 
What if the world were like them? We talk about a world that's spiraling out of control down a vortex like a toilet bowl as we turn our back on God and wonder why it's not working. John the Baptist is coming into this whacked out, crazy world and telling these people, hey, God says, I care about you. I want what's best to you. Turn to me and live like I would have you live. It's for your benefit. It's for the benefit of the world. And the fourth essential is in verses 7 and 9 and then 15 and 17. John tells us to never forget what's at stake. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's talking about the fact that heaven and hell are on the line. There's so much at stake, and it matters so much more than anything that's going on around you. In this physical world, it matters so much more. I don't think anybody in the world ever escapes asking themselves the question at least once in their lives, if not hundreds of times, where do I go when I die? But it's really easy to set that aside and think about other things. John the Baptist comes in and says, hey man, don't be thinking about other things. There is a lot at stake here. Then he references Jesus in this regard. In verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered to them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the idea there is is that Jesus Christ is coming as king. He's coming as savior. He's coming as Lord. He's coming as healer. He's coming as restorer, but he's also coming as judge. And one day, it's gonna come down to what you've done with God. In reality, And where you go, and he says some will go with him, and some are going to go away into unquenchable fire, a place that's irreversibly evil, awful, bad, and not for people. But they go there. John the Baptist doesn't want people to go there, and Jesus doesn't want people to go there, and so he comes into this world and says, hey, Never forget what's at stake. Never forget what's at stake. There's so much at stake for you. There's so much at stake for your kids. There's so much at stake for your grandkids, your neighbors, your workmates. And life's about value judgments. We make them all the time. You research the new car you're going to buy. Yesterday I spent 20 minutes on Yelp trying to find the restaurant we wanted to go to. 
And we'll take that more seriously than whether or not heaven or hell is on the line. For you, it might be settled. You know what's going on. You know where you stand. But I implore you, along with John the Baptist, to think carefully about how you relate in this regard to your family. Do you behave like heaven and hell are on the line? I got a fog-cutting question for you. When you think about the future of your family, what is the most important thing to you? Is it success? Is it happiness? Is it material goods and wealth? Is it a happy marriage? Is it niceness? Is it... Man, can I beg you to put at the top of your list that nothing's more important to you as a parent, especially, and if possible, even as a grandparent, that your kids and grandkids walk with God. And if anything is more important to you than that, please wake up to the message of John the Baptist and never forget what's at stake and your role in helping your family see that. What about when you serve at church? Do you forget sometimes what's at stake? I hope not. And setting up a parking lot sign seems like such a menial task. Putting out bulletins, cleaning up bulletins, menial task. Do you know that I got a testimony from somebody, a glaring awesome testimony with somebody recently about a connection card being the key to their granddaughter finding Jesus Christ? What an awesome thing. Man, what's at stake when we do church work? It's heaven and hell. It's just vital. Please live. Please lead with eternity in view. Who cares if your kids grow up to be millionaires, but they don't walk with God and might not know him? What holds your attention? What holds your affection? How are your actions lining up with what God says? Heaven and hell are on the line. And that's what John the Baptist comes in to say. God is talking. Listen up. And I think when heaven and hell is on the line in our thinking, what it forces us to do, and I think the order is interesting because I think it's kind of like a cycle. When we see eternity we will pay attention to God. We will listen to him. When we understand heaven and hell are on the line and he holds the key to life and eternity, we pay attention to him. And when we pay attention to him, he calls us to himself and it makes it a lot easier to turn to him. But I'm not just talking about salvation. We are confronted with those value judgments. Every day, do I go God's way or do I go my way? Keep what's at stake in your view and it will be easier for you to listen to God and when you turn to God, you will be encouraged, you will be taught, you will be drawn to live life God's way because you belong to God's family. And it all starts with keeping eternity in view. And maybe you don't know Jesus Christ today and all this stuff sounds, whoa, it's a message for the world, it's a message for me. I, I'm hearing what John the Baptist has to say. Maybe you've heard from God today. I hope you have. 
Because eternity's on the line no matter who we are in this room, no matter if we're, we've yet to find Jesus Christ, if we've only known him for a little while, or if we've known him for a long time. And he comes to us and he says that I love you. I love you so much that I gave my son. I had him die for you so that your sins could be paid for, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that if you turn to me, you can know that forgiveness. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Man, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, I hope you can hear his love for you and turn your life from what you think is best, from what you think is right, from those other messages out there that are confusing and clouding and all, and just hear God say, I love you. I'll forgive you. I want you in my family. And if you know Jesus Christ today, the same thing applies. He loves you just as much today as he did as the day you met him true deliverance, true peace in your soul, the place where it really matters is only found in God. And maybe you've been wrestling with your faith, maybe you've been floundering in your faith, and God isn't over-concerned about your past. He's saying, where are you today, and where can we go together forward? And so I wanna invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and have your own personal response to God this morning and I know this message is kind of clear and direct. John the Baptist came in as a prophet. It's the message of a prophet. It's a message of warning. And so it's serious. And sometimes in church, we don't like to hear those kind of messages. But as any parent will tell you, warning is a loving message if it's given for the advantage of the person who is receiving the warning. Your kid's about to run into the middle of the street. You warn them. You scream because it's urgent. And that's love. And that's John the Baptist in this passage. And that's this message. And if you have heard God calling you today, saying to you, turn to me. In whatever fashion you need to turn to him, if you don't yet know Jesus Christ, Will you turn to God? Will you say, God, please forgive my sins? I believe what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me is real. I believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me will change my life. It will take away my sin and give me a home in heaven. If you believe that, pray and invite God to be your savior. Turn to God. Tell Jesus, you love him. Ask him to forgive you. Give him your life. And then maybe you're that floundering Christian. I'm so glad you're in church today. This is where you need to be. You've struggled. You've done things you're not proud of. Your lifestyle doesn't measure up the way you know it should, but you don't like that. For you today, man, just pray. God, I want to come back to you. And then there's those of us in here who are totally committed. We're totally sold out. We want nothing more than to listen to and obey and follow Jesus and live his way. And we struggle too because we're human and we are weak. And so ask for God to give you the strength to be who you need to be. 
And lastly, maybe you have somebody you influence in your life and you've decided today that your influence is vital enough, important enough, that you will take a step out in faith with eternity on the line and lead accordingly. And Jesus, we thank you that all of those things are possible for us in spite of us. I don't deserve one thing that you give. There's nothing within me that drives me to you except your grace. And I thank you for that. And I pray for each soul in the room today that they would hear your message of love, your message of acceptance, your message of encouragement, your message of worthiness and potential for the future found only in Jesus Christ. Let us realize that as individuals, as families, and especially as a church, we turn to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.